0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Sam Brash. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, I'm your host, Sam Brash. When I'm not here on the radio with you, I'm a Vice President Senior Managing Director of Kaiser Permanente Ventures. Uh, My co-host from the first hour, Amy Ramundo, has stepped out, so you're stuck with just me. Uh, But luckily, we have a great guest for the second half, Anishis. Uh, I am broadcasting live from the campus of the Wharton School here in San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, right next door to Silicon Valley. Uh, Although that's a little dated because now everything is based in San Francisco anymore. So, Uh, again, for those new to the show... uh, our show is about the world of entrepreneurship, startups, and, and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, you know, As you all know, for better or worse, there's a lot that's going on here in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, and, and we want to use this show to help bring in some of the thoughtful leaders from various parts of the technology and innovation ecosystems to, to share their experiences and uh, understanding of the work they're doing um, as it maybe relates to the work you're doing. Again, we do love to hear from you, so please give us a call or send us an email. If you have an email, you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and, and we'll try to either answer you on the air or follow up afterwards. Uh, so in the last hour, we had two co-founders and leaders from an exciting digital health company called Evidation Health. Uh, now I'm joined by Anya Sheesh. Anya is an investor in the same digital health, healthcare, IT space. She is the co-founder and general partner at Healthy Ventures. Uh, she's a 2005 Wharton alumnus herself out of the healthcare program, uh, and she launched Healthy Ventures with a fellow alumnus, Emmy Kendall. They focus on healthcare software at the seed stage, and, and we'll explain to you what that means, that enables healthcare to scale. Anya, thanks a lot for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Sam. Good to be here.
1: Um, so let's start, for those that don't uh, live in our world, uh, help us understand what it means well, help us understand what it means to focus on seed stage investing and and why that's unique and why you're doing that.
0: Yeah, great. Well, um, seed stage investing is typically the first institutional round of capital. So a company might um, people might have the idea for a company and work on it for a little while, maybe raise you know twenty thousand to a couple hundred thousand. and that's usually friends and family. Uh, and then the seed stage is typically the kind of, one million to three million dollar round. That is really the um, let's get this thing launched. Let's get it institutionalized and let's start to really find customers. Go out, get some commercial traction.
1: Let's get serious. At let's this get point. serious. We're exactly. taking other people's money. We better we better not screw it up. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Although I imagine if you're taking money from your friends and family, you probably don't want to screw that up either.
0: <laughs> yeah, in, in some ways, that's maybe uh, maybe even a higher bar.
1: Uh, so you know, you you've been running Healthy Ventures. You and Emily co-founded it a few years ago now, but before that, you were working at Cardinal Health, right? A, 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 a Fortune 50, Fortune 100 company. Fortune 20. Fortune like. 20. Sorry, <laughs> I don't mean to sell you short, Cardinal. Uh, how does one go from a large, very large, huge company like that to you know, partnering with one other person to start a venture fund?
0: Yeah, well um... – it's not as as difficult as it may seem. So my career's kind of been jumping between startups and big companies my whole career. In fact, we worked together 10 plus years ago at Medtronic, another uh, big company. But really the idea behind Healthy Ventures was my partner and I were noticing um, a big trend that was happening in healthcare that really had happened probably 10, 15 years before in tech, which is to say, Finally, the um, infrastructure was getting invested in that could allow people to develop companies cost effectively. So what I mean by that is, you know, in the 90s, if we were to build a company together, right, we would need to go out and raise 10 to 50 million to even get started because we need to buy our racks of servers, you know, build everything sort of soup to nuts and then finally be able to focus on our end product, um, and so, you know, when it's a dynamic like that, it really is sort of big company focused, right? Because you just need access to lots and lots of capital. Um, but as we saw kind of after the 90s bubble crashed in tech and a lot of what happened in the 2000s is that infrastructure started to be developed so that if you and I wanted to start a, a app company, you know, a tech company in 2007, 2008, we could do it with a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yep. Right. And that dynamic we saw happening in healthcare right around 2014, 2015, when we started investing.
1: So, you start seeing what? And what were the so, signals you were seeing?
0: Yeah. So, what we started seeing is a lot of people were getting into the market and investing in the sorts of horizontal technologies that were going to allow healthcare to, you know, quote unquote, democratize or, um, you know atomize sort of depends the the adjective you want to use but the principle being you didn't need any more just huge amounts of capital in order to take an idea from just an idea to seeing if it had product market fit and so what that meant in bringing this back to why seed stage is interesting is what that meant is you could do a lot of companies now that you could never do in the past and there the aren't
1: foundation, the foundation was in place. There was exactly enough there. Okay. Exactly,
0: and there there weren't a lot of investors at that time. Now there are a lot more, but there weren't a lot of investors at that time that were willing to invest in that sort of thing in healthcare. Okay. There certainly were in tech, but less in healthcare.
1: So what does it mean to start a venture fund? I mean, I think people out there probably heard or watched enough things on TV to understand what it means to start a new technology company. But what does it mean to start a venture capital firm?
0: It's a good question.
1: Um, <laughs> right, you've done it, so <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Gosh, I don't know. Um, what did it take for us to start it? Well, the sort of obvious um, thing is you need to get investors, yeah. right, in your venture fund. Um, and in order to get investors, you have to have a differentiated view on the world, right? Your investors, who are you know typically endowments, foundations, fund of funds, you know, sort of institutional allocator types. Um, are looking to create alpha, right? They're what does looking that mean for so so. There <laughs>
1: and anyone else out there like me who maybe doesn't understand that.
0: So they're looking for um, for people or ideas that are generating idiosyncratic returns. Meaning, you know, look, if I just wanted to make money along with the market, right? That's beta yeah. um, and terrific invest in index funds, etc. Uh, and there's, you know, a huge portion of of LPs allocation that is on that uh, thesis. Um, but then they they sequester some of their allocation for um, alpha generation. So, you know, one of the ones that I was just talking to an LP the other day that's hot is um, litigation finance. Right. So we, it has nothing to do with what we're doing, but as an example of this generating alpha. So litigation finance is is sort of like Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan in yeah. the suit against Gawker. You know, OK, I will finance you in your lawsuit against some big entity and then I'll take an outside's return of the proceeds. Totally not correlated to market yeah, movements. Yeah, no, it, it
1: just doesn't follow the S and P. Exactly. Okay. So,
0: so truly, true that that is truly alpha, right? Totally uncorrelated. Um, but with venture funds, what they don't want to fund is because of the venture fee structure um, for those of you out there, venture capital typically is a fee structure that's uh, called two and twenty. So. You take 2% of what your fund is from a management fee perspective. So to make the math easy, $100 million fund, $2 million a year to run it. And then once you've returned 100% of the capital to your investors, you get 20% of the profits on top of that. So our $100 million fund that I, you know, just um, just for illustration purposes, say we return $200 million then the lps get their 100 back and then they get 80 percent or 80 million and then the venture capital firm takes 20. so they're rich it's exactly <laughs> perfect if it all can work out like that um but so that's an expensive fee structure yep so you're not going to pay that to somebody if they're going to generate the same returns you could get from passively investing in the s p 500 yeah
1: where you don't have to pay any fees
0: exactly exactly um or you just pay your transaction fees right on the trade um so when you're going out and raising a fund part of your responsibility and part of your pitch is why they should pay you this amount of money right to do it and and why you're <laughs> going to generate those outside outsized returns for them yep. um, so that's so you, you basically know, had to go to
1: the marketplace of investors so the large institutions the university endowments and you had to help people understand why you Anya and, and Emmy your co-founder were going to be able to deliver differentiated returns or at least had a differentiated thesis that would deliver returns that weren't correlated to other places they could put their money less expensively exactly so
0: they're investing behind a portfolio theory right and we're one piece of that portfolio
1: so how hard is that to do i mean you're well it's
0: incredibly difficult for us um it's uh you know there are two components right one is convincing them to invest in your fund and then the second component which is A lot more work than I thought it would be is literally setting up the infrastructure of a new fund, um, which is just time-consuming and takes a lot of thought. And, um, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to identify why we're going to be differentiated um, capital partners, right, or investors in our companies and what value we bring and what relationships we bring and all of that. So. That takes a lot of time in and of itself. And then from the LP base, um, it's one of those, you know, you, it's sort of like we would tell all of our companies when they're going out and doing sales, yeah. right? Understand your market, segment your market, get to know your customers, ask a lot of questions, understand what they're looking for. Um, if you're not going to be right for them, cut, you know, cut off the relationship early so that you don't end up spending a ton of time when you're not going to be ready um it's been amazing how similar raising money is uh to what we tell our companies you know or how we help them build their sales organizations
1: and one thing when you you know reading on your website the way you describe yourselves as both seed stage but management extenders Mm -hmm. like what does that mean i mean i think again people don't always necessarily know what what the venture capitalist role is in the startup world so you know help us understand at least what you're trying to do to help these companies grow
0: Yeah, well, an early stage company, at the stage that we invest, you know, they typically have anywhere between three and 10 employees. Uh, And there's a lot of work to be done and not very many people to do it, right, with three to 10 people. So even though your average startup person works really, really hard, there just are not enough hours in the day. Um, So we spend a lot of our time with our portfolio companies helping them set up sales processes, helping them recruit people, which is a huge, huge challenge, helping them understand how to raise money in the future and helping to you know, pre-qualify leads for that, um, helping them to understand where the competitive landscape is moving and what sorts of things um, they might do to keep up with it. So really, the specific management extension piece depends on the company, yep. but um, the range of what we do for our companies is pretty wide.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it also begs the question, and, and you guys are trying to address this of like, are the venture capitalists there to provide money or is, or are they doing more than that? Because I think people have sometimes asked, why not just go to a bank for you know, yeah. the loan?
0: Well, so I would love your thoughts on this after this because, um, because at Kaiser, you guys obviously offer a very differentiated um, value proposition to companies vis a vis or, you know, versus just giving capital. But for us, um, It all depends where a company is in its development stage. You know, I would say a company that is just pre-IPO probably doesn't need much more than capital. Uh, And so, you know, they should take the capital that's going to be most uh, beneficial to them, which is perhaps, you know, by valuation or from a terms perspective or whatever. Um, But at the early stage, people need to... entrepreneurs need to understand what their needs are and if they have other investors that are spending a lot of time with them then they may not need us right then maybe it is good to get someone whose money is also green um but if the other investors as is commonly the case with the companies we invest in are just individuals or you know other people that maybe have a lot of capital deploy but don't have the time then they need someone like us or um you know, or someone that's going to spend time with them. But I mean, what do you see from Kaiser?
1: Yeah, it's a little, you know, so again, during my day job, when I'm not here with you on the radio, um, yeah, I'm with Kaiser Permanente's Venture Fund, which is a, a different type of fund. Yeah, you know, we invest later stage. We don't get as involved with the companies, but we leverage what we have, which is access to very thoughtful people within Kaiser Permanente to help companies understand what the customer end user or at least thought leader thinks about what they're trying to do as a company and so you know that that feedback from the customer or the user and the understanding of how the healthcare system as a whole will um, access or not access the solution they're building we think is valuable and so that's what we bring because you know similar to what Anya mentioned everybody's money's green you want to create value for your companies it's self-serving because if you're creating value the companies will do better and that's what we're all trying to do is create successful businesses, but you also want people wanting to take, you want the good companies wanting to take your money versus taking someone else's.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
1: Again, for those just joining us, uh, I am your host this evening, Sam Brash, uh, and I am joined on tonight's edition of Bay Area Ventures by Anya Sheesh. Anya is the co-founder and general partners at Healthy Ventures. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to give us a call. If you have any questions, we're at 844 Wharton. Again, that's 844 942-7866. 942-7866. You know, so, I Anya, mean, you were kind of giving us some of your background earlier. You have uh, a very impressive, but uh, not but traditional <laughs> healthcare background. You, you've, you've your professional career. You've really grown up in various parts of the healthcare industry, whether it's you know a medical device company or you know venture investing in biotech and med device and diagnostics. Um, and now you're you know you're focused on healthcare startups, and you bring your healthcare background. Emmy, your co-founder, doesn't come from a traditional healthcare background. What's the value of having kind of healthcare background or not having healthcare background as you go about doing this work?
0: Yeah, so we think it's um, terrific, obviously, that we come from such different backgrounds. We think we're great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, It's a story we tell. But uh, it's interesting because, you know, I've worked in venture before, and um, many venture firms are a little bit like sole proprietorships where you just sort of co-office and you know bounce ideas off of each other but for the most part what you do is sort of soup to nuts your deal you know and your partner has soup to nuts their deal and you know there's enough trust there that you want to have a partnership around it but um but the deals are sort of very person specific um and what we've found and what kind of our thesis was on partnering uh, in the first place, and, and certainly has proven out to be true, but is we each bring very different skill sets to the table. Um, and so for us, not only does our our process in Healthy Ventures uh, is very dependent on each of us doing our own thing for each deal because uh, we have different strengths and weaknesses, but also once we've invested in the company, um, I might be take the board seat for a while when the company is dealing with things that are much more in my wheelhouse. Um, my business partner is an expert, for example, on um, demand gen marketing. Right, where a lot of her career- And as a healthcare
1: person, I don't even know what that means, so that's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when you invest in enterprise healthcare, right, so- Can you define what that means yes, to people? Yeah, so the side of healthcare that's more about the business of healthcare as opposed to therapeutic products, yeah. so- So right? you're not so, focusing on
1: any one individual patient's needs.
0: Exactly, so we're not, our companies aren't developing drugs, our companies aren't developing devices, et cetera, themselves- um, they are creating technology that either allows those things to be developed cheaper, quicker, you know, more co- cost-effectively, et cetera, or they're developing things like um, data liquidity, which I will also define, <laughs> um, but which is this idea that, you know, healthcare data right now is in silos. And even terrifically forward-looking um, providers, like the Kaiser system, right, which has it a little bit easier because they're the payer and the provider. Even those that sort of control all of that and can be forward thinking, it's amazing how messy their data is and the lack of ability um, to to derive insights from all of that together. So that's another example of where some of our companies play in that area. So um, all of that is to say it's it's sort of the flip side of what people generally think about, and in fact, what I did earlier in my career when it's healthcare investing and so where my partner comes into play in that is she is absolutely an expert at those types of technologies in business, okay. right, how you launch those, how you um you know what sort of growth mechanisms you use, and all the rest, whereas my background is much more. Um, you know, knowing hospitals and knowing their needs, knowing doctors and knowing their needs, knowing, you know, unfortunately, twenty plus years of what's gone on in healthcare and why. And so having this sort of backstory to, you know, hold on, we know it's screwed up, but it's screwed up not because people are morons in healthcare. It's screwed up for sort of these reasons, and so a fix needs to involve these reasons. You can't just, you know, throw a blanket approach down
1: uh, and let's so let's talk about when you know you only get to invest in how many companies a year
0: we invest in probably four to six okay closer so closer to four but yeah
1: uh, and how many do you think you look at to get to those oh, four to six
0: we look at about five to six hundred a year yeah. yeah so
1: five to six hundred companies that' have come across your door you know one way or another you've gone out there and looked for them but you only get down to four to six that you actually invest in so maybe help people understand what And these are young companies these are as you mentioned you know two to four people working on an idea at it's pretty early stages so what do you look for like how do you how do you make a decision about which companies uh merit your time and money uh and which ones don't
0: yeah good question and i'm gonna throw the same question back at you in a minute but um for us at our stage the number one factor is people yeah um most companies that we invest in, I think that anyone invests in, but certainly our experience, what they end up being successful in is not what they started in. Usually, it's related, but um you know, as you go through the process of developing products and testing product market fit and you know iterating what you do changes a little bit, and so you've got to back the person if you just back the idea. You know, God bless you, but the company is likely to change. So, um, you know, one, two, three, and four is the team. Um, Then I would say it is a combination of the idea and the market, and those are related.
1: But um, it's an interesting point. Like, I'm going to state the obvious: it can't be a. You're not going to back a good person going after a dumb idea, right? Right. right. So. I I guess you're you're evaluating the idea. You're making sure you are, to some degree, investing in the idea they're going after, but you're recognizing that in the end that may not work out, so you're hoping it's a good person who's going to take them to wherever they need to be?
0: Yeah. I mean, some of the factors that we look for in a person, it's easy to say, oh, we invest in good people, right? That's sort of a throwaway statement. But um, when we think about what those traits are, right, it's grit. It's intellectual curiosity. It is intrinsic motivation for what they're, you know, working on. It is, um, it's sort of mental flexibility. You know, it, my partner said once, and I, I think it's a great way of explaining it, um, you back the decision maker, not the decision. And so if we're talking to somebody and they are terrific, but we really don't like their idea, mm-hmm. often we can get them to pivot their idea in the meeting because they're open-minded, they understand it's early, and they talk to people who say, look, we've seen 50 companies that have beat their head against the wall because they're approaching it this way. Would you ever think about doing it another way?
1: Can you give us a, what's a specific example? I mean, we don't wanna you know, share any confidential information, but what's an example of someone who had an idea uh, or an idea that you thought was not the right idea, but you, you wanted to back the person?
0: Yeah, So, um, so often it comes down to go to market. Right. So the examples that come right to my head are examples where the core thesis they were going after, you know, so a thesis of, for example, interoperability or a thesis of um, platform as a service or, you know, a thesis of payments, all of which are important problems. So we we sort of back the problem space, but they're interoperability
1: again for people out there who don't live in the healthcare world like us. It just means. Data can't be shared between institutions, between users. It just isn't shareable, exactly. for lack of a better exactly. term. And it, it is one of the biggest challenges in the healthcare system. So someone someone's focused on that problem, you're saying?
0: Right. So someone's focused on any one of those problems. So we like the, the broad characterization of the problem. Then their specific um, characterization of the problem might involve um, – so here's a, a perfect example, and I won't out the company, but <laughs> – um, so they're going after this broad data interoperability as you just explained at problem um, and one of their ways of solving it is okay we're gonna go and we're gonna we're gonna sign up huge hospitals and they're gonna sign up for our product and the reason they're gonna sign up is because we offer them you know this one use case that we've built a what we call application layer but application layer just means an end user use case um, that will be attractive to them. Yep. And what they fail to understand is that, you know, hospitals are these very big, often slow-moving, very risk-averse, and you cannot—they should be risk-averse, yeah. right? I mean, we would all they, want them to be risk-averse. It's for, life or death, as exactly, they say. literally. Um, and so, knowing all of that, then they're going in with the, or, or not realizing all of that, or not fully appreciating what those characteristics might mean in terms of sales cycles and everything else they're going in with the use case that is a nice to have but it's certainly not anything critical and so you talk to the the founders and you say okay what you're doing makes sense intellectually it makes sense it is a problem you're solving you know you're not crazy but what you're not understanding is your solution is not actually uh at the scale of the problem you're trying to get them to buy. I mean, it's right? not one of the
1: pain points you guys mentioned on your website of like it, it's not something that matters enough they're going to pay attention.
0: Yeah. Yeah, or or they'll pay attention but it's going to be 18 months later and yep. then, you know, you're going to sit in these crazy sales queues and then IT queues and whatever. So, um again, getting back to the importance of the team, often, you know, the great entrepreneurs are always open to information. Yeah. Right? And they're always listening and they're always ready to um, both push back, which is great because you want someone that has, you know, a sense of of true north and what they're doing, but also is is really willing to assimilate new information and sort of pivot appropriately. So, you know, in the case of the that enterprise company, um, there's another company right now that's kicking butt that's doing that on an SMB small medium business uh, on an SMB basis and really is doing well and that's because the market dynamics are very different in SMBs right yep. in these smaller clinics. So just understanding that can mean the difference between, you know, a good idea well executed and the same idea unexecuted.
1: Yeah, I mean it's pretty interesting though. So you're 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 betting on the person and how they kind of take feedback and incorporate and, and evolve their own thinking it sounds like. Which exactly. Is, uh, Again, you're kind of – you're not betting on the firm idea, the, 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 the specific idea, but you're, you're betting on their thought process and otherwise. Exactly, so. exactly. Uh, again, for those who joined us a little late, uh, I'm your host this evening, Sam Brash. Please stay with me after we take a short break. I will be continuing my conversation with my guest this hour, Anya Sheesh. She is the co-founder and general partner at Healthy Ventures. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures, business power – business radio, excuse me, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, I'm your host, Sam Brash. When I'm not here on the radio with you, I'm a Vice President Senior Managing Director of the Venture Capital Program at Kaiser Permanente. And my guest this hour is ours, Anya Sheese. Anya is also a venture capitalist, uh, but she is the co-founder and general partner of her own firm, Healthy Ventures, which is a seed stage fund based here in San Francisco. Uh, before the break, we were having a discussion around what Anya and her her partner Emmy look for in these very early stage companies they're investing in. again as we talked about at the beginning of the show uh, or beginning of the hour with Anya seed stage is kind of the earliest incarnation of a business so yeah they maybe have an idea they probably developed bits and pieces of it but this is the first time they're coming to raise money from the outside um what's your take on you know guiding people to whether or not they should take venture capital I mean how do you help people yeah. understand if it's the right fit for them
0: it's a great question, and um, and after I answer, I'm going to throw it back on you and find out what you guys look for because you're a little bit later in the ecosystem, and so I'm be curious sort of how that changes. But, um, but for us, and and telling people or helping them understand whether venture capital is necessary or not um, is really to help them understand the business model of venture capital, right? Which is the business model of venture capital is we put together a portfolio, knowing that. 10 percent of our companies are going to do terrifically well maybe 20 percent 30 percent 40 percent somewhere in that 20 to 40 percent are going to go bankrupt or you know just sort of piddle along and not really return much of anything um and then the middle kind of 50 percent are going to do one to three x right one to four x
1: and just so people understand that one to three x means if 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 Onion Energy put in a million dollars into that company as an investor, they're gonna, when the company's all said and done, uh, a pretty good return is you get one to four million dollars right. back.
0: Exactly, exactly. And so, um, so from that portfolio construction, right, most of your portfolio returns are driven by that top ten percent, which is giving you, you know, the ten x for each company. So, you know, ten million when you invested one million. To, to Sam's explanation before um, so that's the way the business of venture capital works
1: which has got to be really funny for people to understand because going in you know you're investing as you said you know four to six companies a year you might make in one fund maybe it's going to be 15 investments yep uh, exactly you have no idea or not much of an idea which three of those are going right. to be the awesome winners exactly. and which six are going to unfortunately go bankrupt and, right. and go away at the beginning everybody's going to be a superstar
0: right yeah exactly so you, you invest in every company as if they're going to be the superstar if we were smart enough to pick which ones would and wouldn't we'd only invest in the good ones and save ourselves a lot of time and, and heartbreak with the ones that didn't work um, but so given that model you have to invest in a company that can be a 10x and as sam said a 10x when all is said and done isn't we invest a million, and it's worth ten million later. Not necessarily, because these companies might go on to raise additional capital later on, which means you know now we have to sell it for forty if our piece is going to be worth ten or or whatever. Um, and so the company therefore has to be able to hit um, a valuation inflection point. And, and what I mean by that is most companies in the world grow linearly right? So you think about it, okay, you know, for every dollar in sales and marketing, we're going to get $2 back in sales, etc. So okay, you know, easy equation to understand, invest a little more in sales and marketing, and your, you know, kind of business grows rateably. Um, uh, you can't really, from a venture perspective, invest in a company with that um, trajectory, because there just isn't enough of a growth uptick that's going to be able to give you that Um, amount of return. I mean, if those people take your money,
1: if those people take money from venture capitalists, they're going to create an unhealthy tension, it sounds like, because the the venture capitalists wants them to be the breakout company, the billion dollar company or the hundred million dollar, but something big and. uh, Exactly, exactly. I mean,
0: you've invested in some of those breakout companies in your career, so you've you've sort of seen the same thing. Um, That doesn't mean, though, that the company that for every dollar of sales and marketing spend is going (laughs) to do two, three dollars in sales is a bad investment overall. It's a terrific investment overall, um, but it's a better investment out of a private equity fund, or it's a better investment with bank debt, right? Or But it, it's just of a sort of financial um, profile that doesn't make it great for venture. And so that's one of the things. Yeah, where that's got to be very
1: confusing for people, because people probably say, Why are you betting on that? You know, betting is the wrong term, but why are you investing in that thing? It's so risky when mine's more of a surefire, pretty good real company. And I guess it sounds like the response is we, you know, we need you to be, have the chance to be something huge and different.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And then the other thing, and, and I'm sure also you've seen this in your career, are companies that could be sold now for a certain amount of money or they could go out and raise, you know. 20 million, whatever the number is, um, but take a lot of dilution. So if you're a founder, just to make the math easy, and you have 100% of the company right now, because you've not taken in any outside capital. Sell. So. <laughs> yeah, you could sell that company today for $10 million. Or you can go out and you could raise 20 million of venture capital, right? You would own maybe 30% of the company. Now, in order for you to you know make that amount of money, it has to be sold for much more. So You know, as a founder, you've just got to really understand kind of what your business is likely to do and what that venture capital you're raising is likely to get you. And and sometimes, you know, particularly if you're looking for just making money as a founder, venture isn't necessarily the right way to go.
1: And do you find yourself... Helping people understand that? I mean, do you view that as part of your role?
0: Absolutely, because alignment between capital partners, you know, venture capitalists and board members, which we also take board seats, um, and founders or, you know, company management is critical. Yeah. And so if you haven't had that explicit discussion with them, um, I think it sets up kind of a weird and potentially bad dynamic. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We sit here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's kind of the epicenter, for better or worse, of all of this activity. How much investing do you do here in the Bay Area versus outside the Bay Area, and, and what are the differences? <laughs>
0: uh, besides valuations? Um, no, well, that's a, one, and, and yeah. tell
1: people what that means. I mean, so it's, there's there's just different expectations in in the San Francisco Bay Area of what your idea is worth?
0: Yeah, exactly. They're very different expectations. So I w- looking at our portfolio, about half of it's in the state of California, um, probably Two-thirds of that, you know, so 40%, 35% of our portfolios, Bay Area. The rest, California overall. So we've got, you know, some L.A., San Diego. Um, and then Austin, Texas, New York, um, Chicago, South Carolina, okay. um, North Carolina. So really kind of all over Boston. Um, and there are two main differences Um, The first one being, as I mentioned before, evaluation, so what the company is worth. And the biggest difference is in California, um, my experience is a lot of people have the belief that their company is worth a lot of money just because they have the idea, Yeah. right? Whereas in most of the rest of the country they understand that okay, the idea is important, but how have we executed it? And that's what's driving the yeah, what, what have we proven? What are the what proof? Have we proven? Points, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so that's the biggest difference at seed stage, especially, you know, not uncommon to have two companies at about the same level of traction about the same um, idea, right? So the same addressable market size, all the rest, you'd think they would be similarly priced in the one based in Silicon Valley thinks they're worth double. Yeah. And they've not had an institutional investor yet that set the valuation, right? Yeah. So before an institution gets involved, typically there isn't a valuation. Things are financed on um, what are called convertible notes.
1: Basically loans from people. Exactly.
0: That, yeah. Loans for people that, you know, have a 20% discount to whatever the next round is going to be done at,
1: so wherever why, it's done. So why invest in Bay Area-based companies then? Why, why is so much venture money staying within the Bay Area if? valuations are higher is it is it the on, the entrepreneurs here are more experienced or, or I want to answer the question for you you know let me understand what your thoughts are there
0: yeah so um, so I think there are a variety of reasons number one the local density of experience matters and what I mean by that is um, if you are an entrepreneur and you are in a place where you know no other entrepreneurs you know not that there are many places that are that remote these days but um, you have to learn everything yourself. And that's problematic, and that will cost you time, yep. and time costs you money, right? If you're in the Bay Area, there are so many opportunities for you to meet with other founders that have dealt with those problems, meet with engineers that have, you know, solved those problems, meet with other sources of capital, et cetera, that just the wheels of, um, Innovation are, you know, much more grease. They yeah. can move much faster.
1: I mean it's probably it's it's an interesting point. And for those people listening who aren't in the Bay Area but are entrepreneurial, that network probably exists where you are, it's just probably harder to access, right?
0: Exactly. And, so, and, but and there's you value but build it. it sounds
1: like that's part of what makes the Bay Area so valuable is people access that ecosystem and benefit from it.
0: It it does. And I would say to people that aren't in the Bay Area, um, there are a lot of metropolitan areas that are pouring a lot of resources into helping to develop um, some of these same sort of business infrastructure or startup infrastructure that people can benefit from because the the local governments realize how much of an engine it can be. But, Sam, I want to go back and ask you, from a later stage capital perspective, what do you guys look for and how do you sort of – you know, evaluate what your companies need to do, et cetera.
1: Uh, you know, I think the maxim that you're bet- you're investing in people doesn't change, okay. uh, even at a later stage. And and again, by later stage, so uh, so the audience understands. You know, I work at a venture capital program. We invest in companies that are often raising their second or third round of capital from venture capitalists, so a Series B or Series C, um, and they are usually at a point in their development or maturation where. They have a product or a service, it's fully developed, and they are out there in the marketplace with customers. And so what we're looking for is evidence of, you know, that uh, elusive product market fit. You know, does the marketplace that you're going after, are they accepting of your product? Are are customers, whether it's a hospital system or a health plan or someone else in in our universe – are people buying what you're selling? And, and it may be you only have three hospital systems because you're small and early, but there's three hospital systems that are saying, this meets a specific need. We're not going to help you co-develop your product. You've developed a product. We're going to implement today. Uh, and again, that that's what we're looking for. And we also, not to interview myself, but thank you. Uh, you know, I sit inside a program at Kaiser Permanente where we're able to go to very thoughtful people inside our organization and say, is this company going after a real problem? And are they doing it in a way that, Makes sense to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we don't say, "Are we ever going to be a customer?" That's not how we invest, but but we do access these very thoughtful people inside Kaiser Permanente. To say, do we believe this is the right way to try to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's another version of product market fit that we're looking for. But you know, I I I won't differ from on your what you said earlier, which is in the end when you're investing in small companies you're investing in the people running those businesses right you know we don't expect that the idea is going to change altogether like you might at the seed stage but we expect that they're going to face obstacles that they couldn't have predicted and the success of the business is predicated on that team navigating right. that you know through right. that obstacle and so
0: do you see differences geographically or by the time you invest no each geography is pretty much the same
1: uh it's very expensive to build a company at you know the stage we're investing companies are raising ten, twenty million dollars to hire engineers and hire sales and marketing people and to hire all those people here in the San Francisco Bay Area is very expensive there's There's a real uh, challenge in accessing talent because there's so many companies going after the same people that we find that investing in companies outside the Bay Area is often more attractive because they can you know i'm I'm invested in a company in Baltimore, this company in Baltimore is able to attract all kinds of amazing people from inside the Baltimore ecosystem, um, and they're not competing with a hundred other interesting healthcare companies. There's lots of, you know, every place has technology companies or startups these days, but there's a lot less of them. And so they get to be much more focused in trying to land the people that they want to grow the business. Uh, And also do a little Bay Area bashing from someone who's born and raised in the Bay Area, And I'll I'll throw it back to you to see if you agree, Uh, the Bay Area is such a startup-centered universe that people often assume they're going to go to a company, and if they're there a year and it's not working, they're moving to their next (laughs) one. Uh, And that's challenging because people don't feel as committed to the businesses they're working at. And I've noticed in other parts of the country, people don't have that mindset. They're not necessarily assuming they're going to jump companies in 12 to 24 months. And so you're able to build teams that are a little more committed. I'm curious i'll I'll ask you as I'm supposed to in my job uh, you know, if yeah you've seen that similar.
0: We see the same problem. The average tenure of particularly an engineer at a company in uh, Silicon Valley is under two years. in yeah. fact, it's under a year and a half um, and so you have a problem where you know, as the founder, you're not only having to recruit new people, you're having to constantly, you know, run the hamster wheel of, can I even retain the people that I have? And, you know, that's why you start seeing, you know, amazing benefit packages. And you start seeing all of these other things from companies that are really so small, they, they shouldn't be spending all of their money on, you know, on those things. Yeah.
1: Dry cleaning and massages and all these other things. And for people who watch, uh, the HBO show Silicon Valley. Sadly, it kind of works that way around here. <laughs> it, for those of us who live here, it hits a little too close to home. Uh, again, I do want to mention for those that joined us late, i Sam Brash. Uh, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures, and I'm speaking with Anya Shee. She's kind of interviewing me while I'm trying to interview her, but Anya is the co-founder and general partner at Healthy Ventures. Um, you know, One thing, Anya, we haven't talked about is you and Emmy are two female leads of a venture capital fund uh, there's been a lot of attention lately shown on the fact that women are very underrepresented both in the venture community and then in the companies that get funded in terms of you know women in leadership roles or women founders. Let's start with what it was like you know, for you as two women coming together to start a venture fund, what was, what were the opportunities available and what were some of the challenges in doing that?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. We didn't realize we were two women doing it until we were going out and fundraising. And then people pointed out, oh, you know, this has got to be helpful to you because there are certain uh, limited partners, which again, are the investors in a venture capital firm um, that have mandates and things like that for diversity, whether that diversity is gender diversity or ethnic diversity, et cetera. Um, I would say I don't know that it explicitly helped. I also don't know that it explicitly hurt. Um, The people that have mandates, uh, you know, are typically public pension funds. So that's why there's a mandate. Private wouldn't necessarily have it. Um, And and their mandate is a certain percentage of their assets. So if you're a $10 billion pension fund and you have to do, you know, 5% or whatever um, to managers – Um, of, you know, diverse managers, you're probably not going to do that with a whole lot of tiny checks to a small venture fund, right? You're probably going to find a billion dollar buyout fund that has a woman partner or co-founder or whatever and do it there. Because then you can satisfy your obligation to invest in, you know, the minority thing with one check versus having to write, you know, a hundred smaller checks. So I think from that perspective, those mandates didn't necessarily help us. Um, but I also don't think they hurt us. I think, you know, where it gets to be difficult, um, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people is, you know, um, people by nature are pattern recognizers. And so if you've always made money in a pattern that is, you know, white male, white male, white male, even if you're not consciously thinking about that, right. When you're reacting to someone who's not a tall white male, um, subconsciously and in your reactions it's colored by oh i you know haven't made money with this type of person before and so you might not sort of weight it as highly in your thought processes so um so at least based on personal experience never experienced any overt problems yeah. right or people that sort of weren't interested um you know i think in some cases it was maybe helpful in some cases it was maybe not helpful but Overall, not bad. I will say it's a huge advantage in investing in companies. Interesting, why? Wow. And what I mean by that is, um, I think there's a arbitrage opportunity in investing in minority company founders. Yeah. Um, because of this, same it's a flip side of the same pattern thing. If everyone else is so attuned to think of sort of the, you know, tall white male or whatever, just to use a very caricatured uh, example, then they'll be missing great people yeah. that don't manifest that way. And by us being two females, if we're trying to invest in a company that is, uh, you know, has female leaders, like an evidation, right, we can make a pitch and maybe get onto the cap table in a way that we couldn't right? if the founders were that sort of general pattern recognition. Okay. So um,
1: that's interesting because you're, you're highlighting why they would take money from you. But I think a lot of people are also highlighting the potential value if there are more venture funds with you know female leadership and people of diverse backgrounds in leadership that they'll be more open and less focused or less used to investing in the stereotypical you know white male entrepreneur and so do you think you know are you seeing i guess are you seeing more companies run by women because you're women vcs or do you and or do you think you're more open to investing in companies run by women because yeah. You're so, not, it's,
0: so for the former question, I don't know because I don't have the data. I only know what we see, yeah. right? I don't know overall if we're seeing a different um, subsection than than anybody else. What I do know is that our investments um, skew, we over index for both women and minorities yeah. as founders, as CEOs, and that is completely not on purpose, right? So for us, um, it just has happened that way. We don't we don't take into account maybe we should but we don't take into account any of those things when we're meeting with founders but in you know trying to explain it retroactively i think a lot of the retroactive explanation is by virtue of we are two women we're just more open to it we don't have that same sort of stereotypical narrative which again i think is unconscious i don't think for the majority of people it's conscious at all Um, but we don't have that bias which which turns us a certain way. So therefore they're overrepresented in our portfolio.
1: Interesting. So, you know, thinking about, you know, so you're building a company in the same way you invest in these startups and there's a couple people who are growing it, um, people are investing in you and you've started something new. Why start a venture fund and not a digital health company to solve one of these problems? What was it that was right for you about this role versus running a startup company that was technology focused?
0: it's a good question um it's just skill set yeah honestly i mean i don't think i would be a terrific um new company founder yeah um i don't know that i have the patience um i don't know that i have such a singular motivating idea that i want to pursue um and And I do know that I don't love day to day blocking and tackling, which as a founder as an early founder, you don't have because you're so early, but you know as you grow a company over time is um, a lot of our listeners probably know you know your day to day becomes much more of a just blocking and tackling you yeah. know checking stuff off the list. so for my particular skill set, um being in this this sector of sort of allocating capital. Um, in being helpful to people and, uh, you know, helping them succeed is much more up my
1: alley. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Why Why didn't you?
1: I, got, I have no ideas. <laughs> uh, but you, you you just highlighted an interesting uh, component of early-stage investing. You are talking about the role of the founder as the CEO in the early phases versus later stages. I know we only have a few minutes left, but I'm curious. When you invest in an early-stage company, as you do as a seed-stage investor and you're investing in people – Do you assume that the skill set they have to run the company in the the early stages is the same skill set you want in the CEO of the company when it's got 150 people working there?
0: No, it's a totally different skill set. That said, some people can do both, right? So it's sort of, um, you know, and some people can't do both, right? And I think, again, going back to the primacy of the founder, how important the founding team is, um, part of that is self-awareness. And we are always willing to give CEOs a shot as the company grows. I mean, it's theirs to step away from rather than, you know, their job to be sort of interviewing for, continuing on. But I'd say about half the time it doesn't work out. And by the time you get to Series B, C, et cetera, you know, which is, again, that maybe 50 employees, 100 employees, um, it's time for change. And sometimes, you know, some of the best, even big company CEOs are actually the founders. Yeah. And that's terrific to see.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. So, you know, not surprisingly, it's a little bit of let's see how this person grows with the role and see if they're still the right fit for the company. Exactly, exactly. And do you guys stay involved? I know you're a relatively young fund, but do you stay involved all the way through the life of the company, or is your role to focus on the first couple years and then move on to the next one?
0: Yeah, our role is to focus on the first couple years. And, again, just to sort of put that in perspective for people listening, so, um, you know, a board of directors of a company typically has – you know, say it's a five-member board, right? Three investors, two non-investors or whatever. But as a company grows, whoever has led the most recent round gets a board seat pretty much always. Um, And so at some point, just so that the board doesn't become 50 people, right? You, you have some of the earlier investors that roll off. So typically, we roll off when a company raises about series B, which is you know seed, then A, then B. So we're Perfect. involved for so, the first few So years. when
1: I come on, you'll come off. Exactly. So you'll just keep we the can, seat form for me.
0: Give each other a high five.
1: All right. Uh, so again, thanks to all of us listening for joining us. And thank you, Ani, very much for joining us on the show today. Um, if anyone has questions afterwards and they want to follow up with us, please send us an email. We're happy to, to try and answer it for you or, or send it on to Anya. Or if it's in relation to evidation, we'll send it on to Deborah Christine. Again, our email address is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on the Twitter at bizradio111. As a reminder, we air live each Monday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, right here on SiriusXM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Uh, Thank you, Anya. It was great having you on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. Uh,
1: Thanks as well to our earlier guests, Deb Kilpatrick and Christine Lemke of Evidation Health. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Brian Drew, and our engineer, Danielle Bruno. Uh, I'm Sam Brash. You've been listening to Bay Area Ventures on on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Uh, Thanks a lot. Hope you all have a good evening.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio
1: Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.